This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Webbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my Times radio show, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. It's a new week, and as ever, we try to focus on the positive. So on today's show, we are discussing your big ideas. A competition has been launched, £25,000 up for grabs, for big policy ideas that could make the country better. So I asked you last week to send them in. We had so many and we whittle them down and we've got some of the best coming up and some policy experts pick over them to say whether or not they would work but first it's our columnist panel it's monday so it must be liberace that's libby purvis and rachel sylvester Now that we had a new um, a new word for the lexicon introduced over the weekend in the Sunday Times, Hancockian, uh, it's apparently the word <laughs> used by uh, by Boris Johnson of all people uh, to describe a target uh, which is a little bit unrealistic or certainly stretching. I think is how Matt Hancock would describe it. Um, uh, you know, it started we we, we started with you know testing a hundred thousand people a day. Uh, that then became I think five hundred thousand people a day. There's now a target of offering. All over 18s are vaccinated by the autumn. We've got the vaccination of priority groups by February the 15th. Are these targets a good way for the government to aim high or do they force them to sort of concentrate on the wrong things and, and forget about the impact on, on other parts of life? What do you think, Libby? Well, I was once on a charity committee which spent 45 minutes debating whether our target should be to have 82% of people approving of its work by 1999 or 99% of under 25s by 1987. And, and when I asked <laughs> why, why we couldn't just talk about getting more people to like the charity instead, I got slapped down by an ex-BBC man, as it happens, it was a charity, for not understanding why target setting was itself an important target. And I, I, I don't like the obsession with targets. If we have to have them from government, let them be short term. Like we'll get the vaccination centres up and running by Tuesday. And we are increasing the testing. End of. I, I would feel more comfortable with that because I just think it creates a kind of dream world la-la land and it gives people yet another stick to poke the government with. And, and there are enough of them. 
Rachel, there's, there's also a difference in there between sort of Hancockian targets, which, like uh, Libby says, have a specific date. So we will vaccinate 13 million people by February the 15th. Very specific. We can we know whether or not that's going to work. Once you start getting to talking about the spring and the autumn, <laughs> uh, <laughs> the the one 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 man's autumn is another man's, you know, basically Christmas. Um, it, it it becomes less. Uh, um, uh, useful, possibly. What do you think, Rachel? Well, it's actually, I would say it's Johnsonian as much as Hancockian. He, the well, Prime yes. Minister is the person who has this sort of absolute optimistic desperation to, to overpromise the whole time. And it's always the case, isn't it, that Prime Minister's greatest strength then becomes their greatest weakness. And Boris Johnson's is this kind of happy, clappy optimism. Everything's going to be OK. You know, we'll be out of this by Christmas. We'll be out of this by Easter. Um, whereas actually... The, there's a danger with that that you then it becomes wishful thinking um and then also as soon as you're over promising and under de- delivering you then um you end up losing public trust and now more than ever in a pandemic you need the public to trust what the government's saying and if they're constantly over promising and under delivering then that's going to have a real impact on public health and what people do because they're not going to believe them when they say actually it is now really bad you've got to stay at home yeah, Libby, it did make me uh, chuckle when I read that Boris Johnson, uh, and I think Simon Case, who's the new cabinet secretary, uh, were, were mocking uh, Matt Hancock. It, uh, I went back and looked at it, and you remember that in March, uh, Boris Johnson said we're going to turn the tide in 12 weeks. <laughs> in May, we were going to be near, nor- near normality by the end of July. By July, it was significant normality by Christmas. Uh, In September, it was back to normal by Christmas. By October, some aspects of our lives were back to normal by Christmas. Uh, And then by um, uh, October, uh, very different and better by spring. Then Christmas became the new Easter. uh, And now we're being told autumn. Well, the whole, it's, uh, honestly, this year has been like being uh, taken through a horror movie by Bertie Wooster, hasn't it? With, with the Prime Minister's <laughs> speeches. <laughs> I just, um, I mean, I, I love, I love bouncy optimists. I am one myself, but uh, you, you just need to rein it in. And I think, uh, I think the overpromising has been a big problem. I hope what's happening at the moment is they're underpromising, and we're all going to be out of it sooner. But that's the kind of bouncy optimist I am. Luckily, I have no power. <laughs> Rachel, I'm going to make the counter argument now that if Boris Johnson had stood up in March and said, listen, it's going to be 18 months of misery. Uh, get ready for it. Gird your loins. Brace yourselves. It's going to be just hideous for the next 18 months. Would we have gone along with it? Is there a part of the prime minister's job is to is to whether or not, you know, we look back and laugh and say, well, he got that wrong. He got that wrong. Is it's just to get us to stick to what we're supposed to be doing right now. And if that means dangling a bit of normality a bit earlier than it really is realistic, as long as that gets us to do what we're supposed to do, like, you know, this current lockdown we're in. If you said it's for 12 months, we'd all be out having coffees on benches with people and breaking the rules. Uh, but by saying, look, you know, it's for three weeks, four weeks, five weeks. Actually, that feels manageable and psychologically it's slightly easier to deal with. I think the problem is the wishful thinking, government by wishful thinking, is actually making them take the wrong decisions. So think about Christmas. Because of sort of wishful thinking, they thought, oh, it's okay, we can let lots of people meet other households over Christmas. And we're now quite literally paying the price, aren't we, for that? Um, That there are more cases have gone up dramatically. Uh, And so it's not just that it's the sort of short term wishful thinking is affecting the decisions that the government's making. So it's not just the sort of 
happy, clappy, you know, boosterous rhetoric. It's actually they're making decisions based on wishful thinking, and that's what's gone wrong. Uh, yeah, and I suppose that's the 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 there was a real sense in uh, uh, Tim Shipman's write up in the paper yesterday, in the Sunday Times yesterday that that you know Boris Johnson. His, his optimism means that he's always waited for something else better to, to come along and it doesn't. We end up having to do something even worse than uh, than we might have had to. Exactly, because uh, you've sort of delayed it. So the, you, you're going to have to eat the nasty tasting medicine in the end. But by putting it off, it almost tastes worse. You've got to eat more of it. Let's move away from coronavirus. Hurrah, says the nation. <laughs> um, let's talk about your column today, uh, Libby. It's a, love, it's a lovely column because you talk about how when uh, when we lose, either it's a great entertainer or a great teacher, we all we all sort of um, we want to pass on what that particular person gave us. And you, you cite people like whether it's Victoria Wood in entertainment or Marie Curie in science and Elizabeth Garrett Anderson in medicine uh, and lots of uh, heroines and, and uh, heroes in politics too. But you've chosen a slightly uh, lesser well-known uh, person who sadly died last week. Well, yes, Catherine Whitehorn. I mean, and uh, obviously there's some kind of eyebrows maybe raised, you know, why does one columnist, uh, you know, go on and on about a greatly famous columnist on another paper? But Catherine Whitehorn was astonishing. She was a trailblazer. You know, she was sort of 40 years in The Observer. And um, she was one of the first women to sort of step lightly and unresentfully into a very masculine, heavy-duty world and just talk about things and write about things which really mattered to ordinary people, but without without a kind of victimhood or or, or a, a tub thump, you know, just pointing out how absurd and ridiculous certain things were, and how absurdly and ridiculously some people behaved. And she was she was wonderful on the whole daily life thing. Her famous book, of course, was Cooking in a Bed Sitter, you know, which was a generation of women who were living independently in bed sitters on their own after the war, when people already sort of they were still thinking, oh, you know, girls should just get married and shut up and obey. Their their husbands and uh, that, that whole world she evokes but I do quote at the end something which I thought was relevant to lockdown as we always talk a bit about lockdown was um she had a brilliant principle it was called the seeing as you're miserable anyway principle which is that if you're heartbroken or upset or you've been snubbed or lost your job this is the time to clean the bathroom and worm the cat seeing as you're miserable anyway <laughs> get it over. So I'm doing all these hideous jobs around the place, you know, just because what's the point? I can't do anything else and nothing else in life. What about you, Rachel? Who are your, your lesser known heroes and heroines? Well, what I wanted to, the ladies column made me think what I loved about Catherine Whitehorn is it's that sense of there's an idealised version of what women are meant to be like. And we're all supposed to be endlessly able to balance cooking fairy cakes and a school run and then working from home and you've seen that more than ever during the lockdown but what she does so brilliantly is to say actually we're all hopeless and flawed the whole time and we're all it's all a sort of muddle um and there's a brilliant column she did about the sort of slut principle which not nothing sexual but about how the, the you know the fact that you always got um holes in your tights so when you take them off the sort of black pen over your legs the dalmatian effect um and that sense of We've had this sort of, and it's still there, I think. If anything, it's got worse. This idea, idealised vision of what women are supposed to be like. And Ooh, anything that all. debunks that, I think, is fantastic. And also the sort of stereotypes of what women are interested in. So, you know, actually women are interested in politics. Well, my favourite interview last year wasn't to do with any sort of 
you know, supposedly womanly thing. It was two footballers, Marcus Rashford and um, Alex Ferguson. That was, and they were talking about their childhoods and how their own sort of impoverished childhoods made, sort of drove them on. And that, to me, I found absolutely fascinating. So that sense of debunking the stereotypes of what women are supposed to be like, I think is brilliant. Absolutely. Last word to you, Libby. Or on Catherine, well, she, uh, I mean, that, that, that kind of sturdy, resigned common sense is, is just the greatest, uh, the greatest thing you can ask for in that kind of commentator. And it's quite difficult to do, actually, because it's far easier to sort of rant and shriek and say men are horrible and, um, you know, life is terrible <laughs> and women are victims and, and so on. It's far easier to do that than it is to have any kind of comradely balance. I mean, men adored Catherine Whitehorn. She had this great gift of sort of comradely friendship between the sexes, which is a very valuable thing. You know, sort of the, brother, the men, men as brothers, you know, men as cheerful brothers, you know, sometimes idiots. Her wonderful uh, sort of cartoon was of Incapability Brown, you know, the, um, <laughs> the chap who never quite does his job. Um, and uh, I, I, think she, I think she was tremendous. Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester there. Don't forget you can read them both in The Times every week. Libby on a Monday, Rachel on a Tuesday. To do that, you need to get yourself a Times digital subscription. Just go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash timesredbox. Up next, it's your big ideas. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Cholley. Now it's your big ideas. Why are we asking for these uh, big ideas? Uh, well, um, there's a competition that's been set up in the memory of Lord Hayward of Whitehall. Uh, now, Jeremy Hayward, as he was then, was Cabinet Secretary, the most senior official in the country, sitting right next to the Prime Minister at the Cabinet table, uh, did it for both David Cameron and Theresa May uh, until his death in 2018. Inviting people to come up with tangible ideas, big or small, to improve Britain as it emerges from the 2019 pandemic. The competition comes with a £25,000 top prize. You've been sending in lots of your ideas. We'll hear more of them shortly. But first, Lord O'Donnell, Gus O'Donnell, who was Jeremy Hayward's predecessor as Cabinet Secretary, is involved in the challenge. He's on the judging panel and he joins me now. Morning, Gus. Good morning. So uh, explain the intro. <laughs> We've got loads more, loads more ideas to come. What, yeah. is the, 
What's the idea behind this prize and how realistic is it that one of these ideas becomes uh, a policy? Sure. I think the, the idea behind the prize is to something that was close to Jeremy's heart and, and mine was not all of purity enough. The wisdom in the world is surrounded, uh, is, is in Whitehall. And we need the public. We need people who are closer to the ground, people who can see things that you miss when you're too close to actually present those ideas. And, you know, in your intro, you came up with some that I thought were, were pretty possible, pretty practical that might be implemented. And we just need that diversity of thought. There are lots of people like me and Jeremy in the civil service, but actually lots of different people have different ideas, look at things in different ways. And that's what we're after. Some unusual but practical suggestions and i'm sorry paul but free pizzas doesn't doesn't crack it (laughs) (laughs) and when you we we are intending just to be absolutely clear about this this is serious right michael gove is on the judging panel the best ideas will go before michael gove i've been talking to people in the treasury the treasury is really interested in this there's a spending review coming up we can we will put the best ideas to the Treasury for them to think about in the spending review as well. Uh, so I can not guarantee that any of these will be taken up, but I guarantee that we'll put them in front of people who have the power to make those decisions. What a great opportunity for someone who's spent, you know, months or years yelling at the radio. Why don't you just do this? Um, yeah. when, you were, when you were the Cabinet Secretary, um, sitting at the Cabinet mm-hmm. table, surrounded by ministers, how much uh, did you, was it a job in which you saw lots of good ideas, um, you know, come to die, you know, getting tied up in red tape? Is that re- really what happens with the good ideas? Or, or do most of the good ideas, are they the ones that survive? And there's always a reason why what appears to be a good idea doesn't go forward. Yes, in general, you'd like to think that the the good ideas uh, mostly come through, and you know I've I've lived there and I've seen, but, but what I've seen is outsiders. I I talk about people like uh, dare I say Dominic Cummings, Steve Hilton, lots of these kind of unusual special advisors, and they come in and they they throw ten ideas at you, and to be honest, quite often nine of them are completely stupid, right? And you spend <laughs> your time stopping them. But there's one in there that's a gem and it's worth its weight in gold. And it's getting those sorts of ideas from people. And mostly they're ones that are apparent from someone who's very close to the action. So someone is working in a charity, someone is working in a local authority. Um, They're the kinds of things you can miss when you keep looking at the big picture. Um, uh, and is there anything that you a big idea which has caught your eye at the moment? Uh, I know you, you don't want to like preempt the the competition, but anything? It, uh, maybe you're going to presumably you can't enter if you're a judge. But if you were going to enter, what would be your big idea? Uh, my, my my big idea would very much be around the education side of things uh, and think again about what's the goal of education. I think uh, when we've seen these exams cancelled, all the rest of it. Uh, beginning to think, well, what actually is it? Is the goal of education just passing certain exams or is it to develop people who will have worthwhile and satisfying lives in the future? And in which case, you know, and, and clearly contributing to society and caring about society, caring about each other. So I think it will be education. There's a lot of ideas have come into the website already, a lot around that, getting the nation fighting fit, learning from dare I say, our prime minister's experience, you know, having the disease, that actually being fit 
is really, really good idea, and it will uh, put you in a good stead if you do get ill in, in various ways. So I think all of this online stuff, God bless Joe Wicks. You know, I'm you know <laughs> into online yoga. I now know about downward-facing dogs and the warrior pose. You know, <laughs> I mean, we've all expanded into new ways and actually trying to keep those habits going forward and thinking about, what were the barriers to that and how can we get rid of them? Uh, you know, and I think making things easy, making it easy to do the right thing is a kind of very basic principle of behavioral economics. And I think that's what we need to do. And I think the fact that the Joe Wicks videos were there and easy for people to pick them up, you didn't need any training, you just do them in your own home safely. I think those sorts of ideas, really, really useful. Uh, well, Gus, I'll tell you what, stay there, because in just a sec, we're going to hear some more of the ideas sent in by Times radio listeners. And we've got two policy experts from opposite ends of the political spectrum who also tell us if they are doable or not. That's next on Times Radio. Times Radio with Matt Chorley. So for the last few days on Times Radio and the Red Box podcast, I've been asking you for your big, brilliant, blindingly obvious policy ideas which would make the country better. I'm joined now by two policy experts to cast a critical eye and ear over them. Matt Kilcoyne is from the Adam Smith Institute, which uh, it's fair to say is on the right of the political spectrum. Matt, are you happy with that as a description? Yeah, that'll be fine. That'll be fine. Yeah, that's fine. We call ourselves um, neoliberal. Very good. Neoliberal. There we go. And Polly McKenzie was policy chief to the Lib Dems in government, now runs the Demos think tank, which is more to the left, Polly. Mm, no, sorry. Sent. You uh, don't like that, do you? You get cross if I say that. partisan liberal, that's me. Fine. Anti-partisan liberal. We'll take that. It's a slightly longer business <laughs> car, but we're, we're happy with that. Yeah. Um, OK, we've also still got Gus O'Donnell on the line. So we were inundated and I asked people to send in their voice notes so we could hear their um, uh, them espousing their ideas themselves. One or two tips. We had them uh, voiced up by uh, some people as well. But uh, here is a selection. We got, honestly, we had so many of these, but here is a selection of the best ideas. Kicking off with Times Radio listener Dean Fell. How about a national health service for pets, funded by a national insurance scheme? Essentially, a, a national veterinary service offering treatment free at the point of delivery. I appreciate it's hardly the big, earth-shattering political idea like world peace or eliminating poverty, but my gut is that it might prove surprisingly popular with many people. Next up, Elizabeth East with an idea for changing how we run elections. My big, blindingly obvious idea is to start holding elections on a Saturday, making it equally easy for all ages to vote by holding elections on a day when most people aren't at work would increase turnout for under 65s and so encourage parties to consider the interests of all ages equally when thinking about policy and to think longer term. Samuel Kind also wanted to change our election system. Proportional representation, valuing every vote equally each vote being worth the same and each vote being equally represented by listening to each other and representing each other fully and fairly for the first time that's how we can move the country forward times radio listener and twitter user soup tomato soup had this plan to tackle speeding rolling speed cameras likely to be unpopular but for motorway safety commercial lorries could be incentivized to have a speed camera on its front a tax break on mileage seems most proportionate, so that the generally steady speed of a lorry can be used to measure the relative speed of vehicles that pass, can be caught and fined if observed speeding, 
Next, David Walsh and his plan to reform childcare. My big policy idea is to scrap David Cameron's policy of 33 hours childcare for three and four year olds and replace it with means tested free childcare for one and two year olds. If the government provided free childcare for one and two year olds when parents who want to work need it most and targeted that at those on lower incomes who need the most help rather than being available even for couples with a confined salary of up to 200k as is currently the case hundreds of thousands of women could return to work if they chose to do so. We had a lot of ideas about housing like Kate Gavon on her plan to change the way we tax property. The solution is simple. The tax should be levied based on the most recent sale price of the property. There would be no argument about valuation, the values would rise and fall as the market changed and there would be no need for either separate valuations or for an appeal process. Shane Irwin had an idea for how councils could make money from homes. Councils in England own 1.3 million acres of land collectively. And planning permission can increase land value by up to 10%. My policy proposal is that councils should be encouraged to grant planning permission on the land that they own and sell it on to developers. They could then use the proceeds from this to buy more land and grant themselves further permission and sell it on. It could help generate a steady revenue stream for local councils to invest in local services and it would really help alleviate housing shortages. Sue Dudridge had a plan to tackle the scourge of second homes we face a housing shortage and escalating house prices that puts home ownership out of the reach of many, particularly in rural areas. If not ban, then tax out of existence second homes. Don't let the outraged wealthy, with their car boots full of Waitrose groceries, get away with the argument that local economies will collapse without second homers. And finally, Times Radio listener Adam Peake had a real vote winner. July the 5th, 2021 will be the 73rd anniversary of the creation, the establishment of the NHS and the social care services that we, uh, we enjoy and particularly have relied upon over the past year. Um, July the 5th is a Monday this year and I suggest that we establish a new national bank holiday, a day to remember not just the NHS and the care services we enjoy but all of those who have provided and will continue to provide services we, we rely upon. Everybody needs an extra holiday and it's a good thing to remember. Well, a lot of ideas uh, to pick over there. Uh, before we come to Matt and Polly, uh, Gus, because I know you've got to uh, leave us in a couple of secs. Gus O'Donnell's still with us, former Cabinet Secretary. Any in there that leap out to you as being a good idea, Gus? Um, I love the idea of making elections more democratic. Um, the constituencies are very, very different sizes and there have been various uh, suggestions about making them the same size so that votes count the same. I like the idea of having elections on Saturday. I think that's really good. Uh, that's, that's one that I would go for. Um, housing uh, and the tax on the sale price, I mean... We all know I was around when we put council tax in place to get rid of the dreaded poll tax that was before it. Um, improving uh, council tax, making it more progressive, as was intended right from the start, is massively important. You might have to tweak that one, I think, a bit. <laughs> so I think great ideas. Um, brilliant that they're all coming through. And um, uh, good luck to everybody. On uh, And let's have lots more. And, and yeah, if people want to enter know? properly, how do they go about doing that? Right. 
go to haywoodfoundation.com uh, and there's there's two. There's the first part is the key challenge or opportunity presented by the COVID uh, pandemic. Uh, and then the second part is the really serious part. How do we fix the problem? Uh, how do we capitalize on this opportunity? And and that's where the £25,000 prize is. Um, yeah, we, we, are, we are very keen to get as many entries as possible and for them to focus on really practical things that could be implemented. Gus O'Donnell, uh, Lord O'Donnell, thank you very much for joining us on uh, on Times Radio. Right, Matt Kilcoyne from the Adam Smith Institute, Polly McKenzie from Demos. Uh, let's pick through some of those. Uh, let's start with you, Matt. Are you a fan of uh, a free NHS for pets? <laughs> I'm, I, I, it's definitely an idea that comes around again and again, but it, I'm not a fan of it and for fairly simple <laughs> reasons. Um, the first one is that the one of the reasons and one of the justifications having an NHS for humans is that we have um, we give a lot of dignity to, to, to humans and a human agency. The idea that that an individual matters um, and like although a lot of people really do care about their pets. Um, and they really do want them to get the best of care, um, there is still a level of ownership over a pet. There's a personal responsibility that you have for your pet, um, where and they bring you a lot of personal joy. And that and the idea that you then had a social cost at a huge expense is like a real big worry for me. And actually, the NHS, when it was first set up, included things like opticians and dentistry um, and all sorts of other elective surgeries that we now see as sort of, you know, um, enhancements issues uh, because it creates a huge amount of demand uh, whereas it it actually doesn't increase the level of supply and increasing the amount of veterinary service um, would be would be just a huge way of increasing the amount of demand for veterinary services without increasing the supply or quality and therefore not increasing the level of care that actual pets get at the end of the day so it would just be a huge money money drain for me (laughs) but it would be immensely popular people love their pets um, and it would be a disaster for everybody other things that aren't quite as sexy or as cute or as cuddly as their pets so was there anything else uh, on the, those those recorded voices of our listeners? Um, was there any of those that leapt out that you liked the sound of? Um, I quite like the Saturdays, elections on Saturdays. Originally, this was because uh, you had pay packets on Fridays. Um, and so there was a worry that you would get drunk if, if you, like, and, get, and, and fail to wake up on Saturday and go and vote. Um, and that if you had elections too close to Sundays, that the church would tell you how to vote. Um, and so it's just by convention that they're done on Thursdays. And I think actually moving it to Saturday makes total sense to me. Um, I quite like the idea of, um, like I, I, I thought it was quite an interesting one, um, having the idea of taxing property based on the last sale price. That would cause all sorts of problems in a fully functioning market economy for, for housing. But our housing economy is so screwed up. Um, and so incentivized to not have real values of property um, currently taxed very well uh, because large numbers of people who own homes in in places uh, where they have lots of political power, um, that it would it, it would at least start to change the way in which um, like property is well valued, especially in things like Mayfair um, and West London and out in Cornwall, that would make it a little bit more equitable. Okay, let's bring in Polly McKenzie from uh, Demos. Uh, Polly, any particular that you like the sound of or really didn't like? I mean, I think Saturday elections are something that, like, most sensible people could get behind, to be honest. Um, I think it's really interesting that so many were about housing and and property taxation. You know, after the Second World War, there was this agenda to basically nationalise pretty much everything, the commanding heights of industry, and it sort of sucked in all sorts of things to national control, including your right as a landowner to do basically what you wanted with your land. It said that that right now belonged to the state and the state would give it out 
through planning permission, according to a kind of complicated bureaucratic process. So it took it completely away from market forces. Over the course of the last 80 years, we've slowly liberalised and denationalised almost everything else that we nationalised in the post-war settlement. But we have kept and retained, partly because exactly like Matt says, the people who benefit from this protectionism around land and planning permission are those who own houses, who are those who vote Conservative very often, or older people. They want to protect the assets. So we've got this problem whereby because we nationalised and have never really dealt with our planning permission system, we ration housing in this country, and then we pump huge quantities of money into this rationed number of houses through um, allowing people to have second homes, as one of your listeners mentions, but also, crucially, especially right now, these really, really low interest rates. So it's no surprise the, the prices are going up and up and up, and we end up with a completely pointless value of our of our house i can only get get out the money supposedly in my house if i sell it and then i've got nowhere to live so I, I, i'm not sure any of the ideas are perfect but i think that your listeners are completely right that across that system of housing it, we're just in a mess we need proper ways to build enough houses and then you wouldn't need to worry about uh, some people having two of them if they were genuinely enough for everybody and people had to pay for the assets that they were accruing appropriately with the tax system instead of effectively being subsidised to, um, to, hold, to hold assets in property rather than in other things that might be more productive for the economy. Yeah, we did have loads and loads about housing. So I think everyone recognises it's a it's a problem that needs tackling, albeit with um, different solutions. OK, let's stop. Let's stop talking about uh, Times Radio listeners ideas and let's talk about your ideas instead. Maps, um, maybe you've already entered, but what would be your big idea to try and uh, uh, win this this twenty five thousand pound competition? Oh, I bought everybody I know about this, uh, but I would have free movement between Canada, Australia, New Zealand and the United Kingdom. Um, and I would do it tomorrow. I do it yesterday, but I do it tomorrow um, to allow anyone who has a job offer or has a, pl- a place of study um, the right to live and work here in the UK if they're from uh, those, the, the other five eyes countries, effectively, um, minus the US. Um, it allows us to say, OK, fine, Europe wasn't right for us. These are countries which we know people are very, very popular, very, very pro. They don't even see them as being separate countries or foreign countries. They see them as the place where Andy Val lives or uh, the cousins live. Um, And it would be so simple, such a powerful block, uh, geopolitical block. Um, It would automatically be the third largest economy. Um, It would be by area would be the largest country in the world. Um, it would span the world and it would be a real difference in terms of like it would just change the way that we think about the world. Instead of being an island on the edge of Europe, we'd start to be that global Britain that we uh, we've said we've wanted to be for, for decades. I, I, I might resist asking Polly what she thinks about Matt's idea, because then Matt might have to say what he thinks about Polly. Polly, what's your big idea? we need to completely transform the way we do benefits in this country which is a bit dangerous because i was involved in transforming them before with universal credit which is a complete mess but basically i think we should abolish the dwp um lots of people get money off the dwp like pensions or whatever it's completely unconditional it, it why is the dwp doing it handing out money give it give it to the treasury and then if people are out of work for other reasons there's basically three reasons one uh, there aren't the jobs in the economy. Well, in the end, the business department should be dealing with that too. They haven't got the skills that they need. Well, the business department should be dealing with that and the edu- uh, through education. And the other reason is if people have uh, health conditions. 
And all of that uh, should be transferred to Department for Health, which should be radically localised as well, but and, and through personal budgets, giving people the opportunity to find and build their own package of support to get themselves back to work through improving their health. So there's been kind of pilots of these things, kind of um, independence uh, uh, and, and c- kind of combined payments. But we have this fundamental assumption that most people can't really be bothered to work and you actually have to have a whole conditionality regime to sort of poke people because otherwise they won't want to work. The reality is the vast majority of people do want to work. What they can't do at the moment is control the money that is allocated to them in order to plan it and make it so that they can get back to work. So no more Department for Work and Pensions. If people are sick, they should be getting complete comprehensive care through Department for Health. And if they need skills, then the Education Department should be worrying about it. Uh, just very, very quickly to both of you, what's the stupidest idea you've ever come across which has actually sort of progressed in politics? Uh, Polly, you were in number 10 working for the Lib Dems Joint Coalition. There must have been some daft ideas crossed your desk. Oh, yes, loads. Most, I mean, I shared a desk with Steve Hilton, so most of them came drifting across the desk from him. But, I mean, surely, <laughs> you know, the, the, the bridge from Scotland to Ireland is surely one of the stupidest <laughs> ideas that, that has any currency right now. What about you, Matt? Uh, help to buy, like massively ramping up demand whilst not increasing supply of housing, and then being shocked that it increased house prices out of reach. That was a that was a dumb idea. Well, that's it for this episode of Red Box. Uh, if you've enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. Maybe even leave us a rating because it helps with the mumbo-jumbo charts. We release an episode every day, Monday to Thursday, featuring the best bits of my Times radio show. You can listen to the whole thing uh, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. It's available on DAB, online, via smart speaker or on the Times radio app. And if you want to read more about all of the stories we've been discussing, then go to times.radio forward slash subscribe. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary. Not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.